Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, The David Pakman Show, The Colbert Report, The Onion Radio News, NPR, Slate Magazine, Snarkopedia, Tom Hartman Program, Media Matters, On the Media, The Green News Report, and Johan Hari with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Onion. An old favorite is being celebrated today. It is National French Fry Day. Woohoo! National French Fry Day! Time to enjoy some of the 29 pounds of the Golden Crisp Starch Batons we eat every year. Of course, that's followed tomorrow, of course, with National Slightly Looser Than Usual Bell Movement Day. <laughs> so that's the good news. I wonder what the bad news is. Two new studies show every state but one, Colorado, now have obesity rates over 20%. A dozen states, mostly in the South, have even topped 30%. I mean, those numbers are astounding. It's just, that's huge. It's a huge signal. Well, I don't know if it's a huge signal. That's more of a Zoftig or Cherubic signal. I mean, built for comfort signal, not, you know. Here's how it's gotten so bad so fast. Just 20 years ago, not a single state had an obesity rate above 15%. Today, 38 states are above 25%. Meaning America's only growth industry is growth. But why? You can certainly chalk it up to big portions and a lot of couch potatoes. We are eating less nutritious food and more of it. It's our fast food industry. How about the Baconator double meal at Wendy's that weighs in at 2,530 calories? the problem it's a baconator we've weaponized our food isn't isn't there some less comprehensible theory that makes it sound like maybe it's not our fault i think that obesity is going to turn out to be uh environmentally related i think the peptide composition of people has changed uh, i think mm -hmm. there's some really interesting uh unpublished research <laughs> are you saying it's it's us eating environmental peptide mutation crunch that's causing this? Come on! We either mend our double-down ways or we end up so obese we stop reproducing because we can't locate our genitals. Look, I don't know. I really think it might take a new generation of Americans to make a fresh start. At more than 16 pounds, Jermichael Brown could be the largest baby ever born in Texas. We're going to need a bigger Baconator. Hey, Lewis, what's the best reason, if you could tell someone who listens to Jay Tomlinson's Best of the Left podcast to tune into our show, what, what's, what would you say to them? Uh, I would say that uh, our, our view of things is among the best of, of the left. Our view is the best. Like, our view, what kind of view? What does that mean? Our worldview. Which consists of what? Pretty much everything. <laughs> but what's, like, one thing? What could people expect to hear if they tune in? Uh, let's see. It's not clear, is it? It's not. Anything goes. Anything goes on the show. Pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. We've also been talking recently about obesity rates and uh, nutrition and so many related topics. And obesity rates have risen 90%, 9-0 in 17 states since 1995. Nine of the 10 states with high obesity rate, with the highest obesity rates are in the south of the United States. Mississippi leads at 34%. Alabama and West Virginia are there. 
And these states also lead the nation in diabetes and high blood pressure, not surprising at all. And Medicare and Medicaid, which are the public health plans, spend more than 20% of their budget to treat illnesses related to obesity and smoking. One out of five dollars, Lewis, is going to diseases mostly caused by avoidable medical risks. And it's pretty shocking. However, it's not surprising. No. Obesity is having a body mass index above 30. So, for example, a six-foot-tall adult man weighing 221 pounds or more is considered obese. An adult woman who's 5'6 and weighs 186 or more is also considered obese, according to the National Institutes of Health. As we know, people with obesity are high at risk for uh, diabetes, hypertension, and uh, a number of other uh, medical conditions. I don't actually know what the cause is here. Is it just a cultural thing? And cultural could include the fast food culture. It could include bigger servings. It could in food, uh, include food being consumed in food. It could in food. It could include food being consumed on the go as well, whether it's fast food or not. There's a number of factors here. We talked about the effect of soda the other day, Lewis, as well. And not so much the fact that soda is popular in the U.S. because it's popular in a lot of places, but the serving size situation, the 64-ounce Big Gulp, mm -hmm. and uh, Harvard uh, University School of Public Health professor Stephen Gortmaker said it's gotten easier and easier to consume lots of food at more times of the day. That's the biggest shift in the last 20 years. We also hear about, well, in other countries, people walk a lot more as a regular thing. I don't think any of these individual factors are the contributing factor to obesity. It seems like it's really a combination of, of cultural factors. Yeah, I think it's, it's the food culture. I think it's the quality of food and the lack of exercise. I think those three things are 90% or more of, uh, of what causes obesity. I don't want to open up a whole can of worms, but we've also seen some of the cultural aspects of getting into exercise when kids are young hampered by the fact that many schools either for because of funding or because of controversial issues related to gym class bullying have basically eliminated what we know as gym class as well mm -hmm. and many many people many advocates including somewhat comically because of his personality richard simmons are out there saying you can't get rid of gym class because this is where kids get these habits they get the habit of exercising of playing sports of doing whatever so let's figure out the gym class bullying thing. Let's figure out the money thing, but let's not get rid of gym class. And that actually does strike me as a cultural factor that could be significant. Yeah, I think that's big. And of course, we, we talked to our, uh, our intern a lot about that. And uh, she had some incredible things to tell us uh, about the changes that have happened since we were in high school. Right. At our, our school, replacing gym class with uh, wellness is called, I think, is that what it is? Wellness, yeah. Strange stories about uh, walking across the gym blindfolded and... Uh, drum circles or who knows hey there you go almost, drumming is exercise almost no uh aerobic activity right well is that fair to say we're getting a nod yeah all right Some girls are bigger than others. Some girls are bigger than others. Some girls.
Sorry, sorry about this. It's just been a busy day, and I haven't had my recommended daily allowance of vitamin yum. <laughs> this is the new Beefy Crunch Burrito from Taco Bell. Brimming with flaming hot Fritos. It is all that and a bag of chips. In that, it contains a bag of chips. Their bright orange color warns you, massive flavor ahead. They're like an edible traffic cone in so many ways. Look at me flapping my burrito hole when I should be getting my bell on. No wonder they call it a beefy crunch burrito. It is beef e or beef-ish. At the very least, it is beef adjacent. Let me put it this way, on a scale of one to beef, it's got something in there. But apparently, some people still think inside the bun. Jim? An Alabama law firm's tested Taco Bell's beef. Allegedly, it doesn't even satisfy the government's minimum requirements to be labeled beef. The lawyers are suing Taco Bell for false advertising to stop calling it beef. Who cares what the government says? I say if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, glue some hooves on that thing and call it beef. But the law firm bringing the suit claims that they had Taco Bell's meat mixture tested and found it contains less than 35% beef and the rest is filler. And according to the USDA's food labeling policy book, taco filling must contain at least 40% fresh meat. Well, I just think those filler ingredients like beef's roadies. They may not be very attractive, but you gotta go through them to get to the band. But the Bell Bunch isn't taking this one sitting down. They released a statement by Greg Creed, Taco Bell's president and chief concept officer. An important position because their meat may be a purely theoretical concept. Creed shot back, we start with 100% USDA inspected beef. Case closed. They start with 100% beef. It doesn't matter where they finish. It's all about the journey. Plus, it was USDA inspected. Only a stickler would demand that it also be USDA approved. It's enough that they looked at it, even if only out of morbid curiosity. And taco conceptual artist Greg Creed further points out that the remaining material merely consists of seasonings and spice ingredients that are listed on their website. Seasonings like isolated oat product, soybean-based anti-dusting agent, and silicon dioxide. Now, you may know silicon dioxide by its street name, sand. It's like your mouth has gone to the beach to take a vacation from meat. So... Mm. So bravo, Taco Bell, for your delicious beef-esque product. And even if it is only 35% beef, well, I say, I'll just eat three of them to get 105%. Mm. Mm -mm. Tell my kids I love them.
It's the Onion Radio News. McDonald's stock tumbles as more consumers turn to food. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The McDonald's Corporation announced today that it will close 175 restaurants and cut nearly 600 corporate jobs in response to a plunge in stock prices and rising consumer interest in actual food. COO Charlie Bell spoke with reporters at the company's Oak Brook, Illinois headquarters this morning. We believe this whole non-reconstituted food craze will pass. Long a popular favorite among busy, on-the-go Americans lacking the time for genuine food, McDonald's is now said to be considering the possible introduction of some recognizably food-like items to its menu in response to consumer demand. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News, online at the Onion. Once called the disease of kings, gout conjures images of Victorian England and portly royalty, their swollen feet propped on pillows to ease the pain. Well, a new study finds that gout is making a comeback. As NPR's Patty Naiman reports, researchers suspect this severe type of arthritis is linked in part to the obesity epidemic and diets rich in meats and alcohol. It was a sudden onset in the middle of the night. 51-year-old Greg Hanoush woke up with a strange sensation in his foot, partly numb and extremely painful. And it was so bad that I had to get my leg out from under the sheets because the pressure of the sheets on my foot and on my leg was, was too much. He did manage to get back to sleep, but in the morning, the pain was worse. I couldn't put any weight on the foot. and I was hopping around on one foot. It was almost as bad as if the foot was broken. Hanush had a similar problem 10 years earlier. He suspected gout and called his doctor right away. He said to get in there, which I did. He confirmed he did some blood work on me and confirmed that my uric acid levels were sky high. And really high levels of uric acid are the main cause of gout, which was the diagnosis for Hanush. The excess uric acid had formed crystals, sort of like little needles, and migrated to joints like his feet, elbows, and shoulders, causing the intense pain and inflammation. There are a number of reasons for too much uric acid. A big one is genetics. Being male also makes you more vulnerable. So does age. The older you are, the greater the risk. But diet is also a factor, and Hanoush knew his wasn't good. I was eating a lot of red meat, and that's one of the worst things you can do for gout. I was also drinking beer. I, I've been drinking beer as a you know regular beer drinker since I was in college. 
Meats and alcohol, especially beer, can drive up levels of uric acid, which is a byproduct of digesting these foods. The more you consume, the more uric acid is produced. The same is true for certain seafood like herring and scallops, as well as sugar and sugary drinks like soda. Hanusha's rheumatologist, Dr. Han Choi, studies gout at Boston University School of Medicine, and he was seeing more of it. He wanted to know if nationwide gout was on the rise. He compared rates of the disease today to about 20 years ago. He found an increase of 44 percent. This is a substantial increase. The number of、uh, individuals affected by gout was 6.1 million in、uh, 1988. And、uh, 1994, but now it's 8.3 million. That's about four percent of all Americans. And when Choi analyzed the numbers more closely, he found strong links to simultaneous increases in obesity and hypertension. Good morning. How are you today? At Kaiser Permanente's health clinic in Portland, Oregon, internist Keith Bachman sees plenty of patients who are overweight or obese. We know as people gain weight, their metabolism changes in in lots of ways, and one of those leads to increased uric acid level, which then leads to gout. In fact, in Choi's study published in the Journal of the American College of Rheumatology, he says obesity is clearly a factor. Now, one in five Americans has elevated levels of uric acid. Once a patient has gout, another episode is likely, says Choi. The problem is easily treated with anti-inflammatory medication, but Choi says by far the best treatment is prevention. Exactly what his patient Greg Hanush did. I'm going to the Red Sox game tonight, and first thing I'm going to want to do is have a beer while I watch a ball game. It's just, you know, who I am. <laughs> But unfortunately,、uh, I'll be drinking water and maybe a glass of wine. And I do miss red meat. I love steaks, hamburgers, all of that kind of stuff. But it's been worth it, says Hanush. He hasn't had a recurrence of gout for the past year and a half, and he's lost weight. Patty Neiman, NPR News. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at BestOfTheLeft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but seven to eight percent of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Today's story is called "The Invisible Food Crisis." Food prices are going up everywhere. Will they start rising in America too? And it's written by Annie Lowry. The next time you're in your local grocery store, look for signs of dramatic inflation. You won't find any. In all likelihood, your bananas and breakfast cereal and milk are about the same price as they were a year ago. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the price of a basket of common foods increased only about one and a half percent in 2010, after declining a half a percent in 2009. Perform the same exercise in an Egyptian or Bangladeshi market, and you would get a different picture. 
In the past few months, skyrocketing food prices have raised concern among economists and anti-hunger advocates, and rising food costs have even helped foment revolutions. Last week, the World Bank reported that food prices increased 15% from October to January and have climbed 30% in the past year. Currently, the bank's price index sits just 3% below its 2008 record. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization keeps a separate index of food costs, and it blew past the all-time record last month. Wheat prices have doubled since last summer. The price of corn has risen about 75% since June. Prices for sugar and cooking oils have also jumped. The consequences are potentially devastating. The World Bank says that spiraling food costs have driven 44 million people into extreme poverty since June 2010. What is causing such a drastic spike, and will it ever reach America? The price spike is explained through a number of dynamics. First, farmers have diverted more resources to growing crops for biofuels, such as ethanol made from corn and biodiesel made from palm oil. Currently, the United States diverts millions of bushels of corn to fuel production, whereas it diverted virtually no corn to the process ten years ago. Writing in the Washington Post, Princeton scholar Tim Searchinger says that biofuels now eat up six and a half percent of the world's grain supply and eight percent of its vegetable oil. Such competition for crops pushes prices up. Second, the simple laws of supply and demand are in play as well. In developing nations, more people are buying more food. Moreover, they're purchasing more meat, which requires not just the cow or pig, but the grain to feed it. And as demand for food has increased, there have been supply shocks. A few key producers of food, such as Russia and Australia, have suffered brutal droughts or floods. And because nations now tend to hold smaller stockpiles of grains and other staples, partially due to changing World Trade Organization rules, the food supply chain is now more sensitive to such supply shocks. Finally, there are less direct market forces. Commodity speculation, traders making bets on the direction of commodity prices, can drive up the price of crops and fuel, a major component of food costs. The Federal Reserve, meanwhile, has printed trillions of new dollars in the last two years, lowering interest rates in the United States and increasing the amount of money available for investment. Those dollars might be seeking returns in emerging markets, driving up inflation there. Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke said earlier this month that the price spike could be better explained by the faster pace of economic growth in emerging economies, the so-called two-speed recovery. One way or another, it's clear the food price bubble has reached crisis levels. But why hasn't it reached America? For one, Americans and residents of other industrialized nations consume higher proportions of processed foods—Doritos, hot dogs, and the like. A large part of the price of these foods comes from labor, packaging, and marketing, making them less sensitive to changes in food costs. They're less food than food-based products. Economist Mark Perry produced a chart that helps demonstrate the phenomenon. Food prices for raw goods like wheat fluctuate wildly, while prices for processed goods like breakfast cereal are far less volatile. Additionally, the lagging U.S. recovery has caused a slump in demand for consumer goods. Americans have not been buying much of anything for a few years now, whether restaurant food or cotton T-shirts. That has forced retailers to keep prices low across the board. All that said, the honeymoon might soon be over. 
Indeed, some U.S. companies have started warning that they will need to increase prices due to rising commodity costs. For instance, cereal maker Kellogg says it has bumped up prices and expects the price tag in a box of Wheaties to keep increasing this year. And a BLS report from last week shows signs of inflation in food and energy costs. In January, the Core Inflation Index, which excludes more volatile food and energy prices, increased only 0.4 percent. But prices for fuel, a major contributor to food prices, spiked, with gas climbing 3.5 percent after a 6.7 percent rise in December. And the cost of food itself rose a sharp half a percent. So don't expect low prices at your grocery store forever. Come and open up your folding chair next to me. My feet are buried in the sand and there's a breeze. There's a shadow you can't see my eyes. And the sea is just a wetter of the skies Let's get a silver bullet trailer And have a babe goodbye I'll safety pin this clothes all cool and you'll graffiti up his ties It's the Onion Radio News A hog is executed farmland style This is Doyle Redland reporting Police in Grundy Center, Iowa, are investigating the vicious farmland slaying of a prize hog whose methodically gutted corpse was discovered late yesterday in the barn of local livestock farmer Lyle Whitman. Grundy County Deputy Keith Angrim describes the grisly scene. The victim was hung by its feet with its belly sliced open and the head removed. We believe the killing was committed with a large butcher knife or some similar cutting implements. Angrim added that given the meticulously brutal nature of the slaughter, he believes the the hog was, quote, taken out by a professional. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. Agricultural megalopoly Monsanto earned its reputation for being the least ethical company in the world for simultaneously being in the agricultural business and working to ensure that nothing natural grows from the earth. Confused? Good because soon you're going to be pissed. Recently, Monsanto scored a big win after spending millions of dollars lobbying the USDA to deregulate genetically engineered alfalfa. I know! Who eats alfalfa and why does it need to be regulated? Now can't we all just be free and let the market dictate what kind of alfalfa I eat and what I don't eat? That is a cute argument you got there, my little patriotic libertarian countryman. And now, Monsanto is giving us all a chance to see how this basic, unregulated liberty thing works. Because, see, basically, genetically engineered alfalfa affects, um, well, all life on this planet. Winds carry the seeds of Monsanto's genetically engineered alfalfa 
and they cross-pollinate with the family farm guy who's down the road growing certified organic alfalfa to feed to his organic half-and-half -half dairy farm cows. Now the genetically engineered crops are commingling with the formerly organic crops. So now the genetically engineered alfalfa is in the coffee that you sip as you sit in your fair trade organic coffee shop listening to the local Ani DeFranco wannabe. Basically, alfalfa will be procreating in an ever-narrowing gene pool, which is not good for the survival of the species, something I suspect that those working hardest to fuck up the Earth's ability to sustain life know a little something about. The effects of genetic engineering on plant life are irreversible. Therefore, when the little mom-and-pop farmer next year grow their alfalfa crop after the prevailing winds have cross-pollinated it with Monsanto's alfalfa, Monsanto might just sue the little mom-and-pop farmer out of business. How? I'm gonna tell you. Monsanto's crops saturate the market. They are working fervently to patent the genetic codes of their seeds. If you save the seeds from one of the plants that they engineered, they own it. If one of their plants cross-pollinates with one of your plants, they own it. That's how deregulation works in America. Ask a libertarian to defend that. Finally, Cargill is recalling 36 million pounds of ground turkey. Uh, people who eat food are screwed. The giant transnational agribusiness corporation Cargill announced yesterday that it's recalling 36 million pounds of contaminated turkey that has killed one person, sickened at, that we know of, seriously sickened, 76 others in 26 states. They're now announcing the recall, even though the outbreak, this is August, the outbreak started in March. It took the USDA and the uh, CDC to track this thing back. Coincidentally, back in June, House Republicans passed legislation that guts the federal food safety budget, slashing $87 million from the Food and Drug Administration and slashing another $35 million from the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Food Safety Inspection Program. As Republican Congressman Jack Kingston said in defending the bill, the food supply in America is very safe because the private sector polices itself. Tell that to the family of the person who died or the 76 others who were sickened or tell it to the 50 million Americans who get sick from foodborne illness every year or the other 3,000 who die because of contaminated food. And frankly, that ain't nothing compared to countries that don't have the equivalent of the USDA. Gregory Conco is with us. He is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute fo focusing on food and pharmaceutical safety regulation. CEI.org is the website. Gregory, welcome. Thanks for having me on the show, Tom. How can you defend, uh, hang on just a second, how can you defend the, uh, the practice that the Republicans are engaging in now of trying to defund the USDA when if you visit, and um, I don't maybe you haven't, maybe you haven't visited third world countries, but it, it, you visit these countries that don't have food safety rules, and what you find is that the food is poisonous. Uh, I have, uh, on many occasions, uh, traveled through the uh, developing world, and uh, it is in, uh, unfortunate uh, how food is produced there. 
uh, out in the open with uh, uh, very little uh, of food safety technology to uh, to help them. Uh, in the United States, though, I think what we need to talk about is uh, exactly what it is that our food regulators are doing, and I think that there are some things that uh, that make sense. Uh, and ought to be pursued, perhaps even expanded. But uh, by and large, a lot of the things that we're doing just don't make sense. For example, the Food Safety Inspection Service, the, the branch of the USDA that inspects uh, slaughterhouses, including ones like Cargill's uh, turkey processing plant, they look at the food to see whether it's contaminated. But you can't see bacteria. You can't see viruses. And uh, this kind of uh, what's called poke and sniff inspection just doesn't make sense. The USDA is also responsible for the laws that require companies like Cargill to have ins- uh, ha- to have machinery that does detect the bacteria. And That's we right. know and, we know, for I, example, in the famous case during the George Herbert Walker Bush administration, when the, one of the largest meat processing companies in America uh, ended up killing, as I recall, about a hundred people nationwide. They had turned off the listeria detector that was on that food line where they were making hot dogs that was required by federal regulation and that is inspected by the USDA to make sure it's working. So they don't need an inspector to to detect the bacteria. They require that the machine be there. When it started going off, the, this company simply turned it off. It took the it took the CDC four months of genetic testing to track back who was killing people with those hot dogs, and it turned out it was in this one line where they turned off the machine. Because it was giving them too many pings. These are the people, the, the corporations that turn off the machines that you want to trust our food safety to? The weakness in the system is that those, uh, those kinds of infractions go with a slap on the wrist. The, the problem is... So that, you want that, the USDA to have more power to penalize big corporations? I want there to be real penalties when corporations are found actually introducing uh, or, or letting uh, contamination, foodborne uh, pathogens, get into the food supply. Okay, so uh, what you're question, arguing for the then is, is an after-the-fact, you know, okay, after people die, then we're going to do something about it. What happened to the precautionary principle? What happened to uh, making sure that well, people hey, don't die in the first place? The precautionary principle is an entirely different argument, but, but I think the, the, well, that's the what the detectors here, are. The point here is, yes, there are programs like this, the, the detection. It's a program called Hazard Analysis, Hazard Analysis and Critical Control Points. It's the uh, meat and poultry industry, the seafood industry, have uh, had to use these programs for about 15 years now under the new uh, food safety legislation that was enacted in January. This is now extended to uh, produce and other packaged food. And I think HACCP can make sense if it's implemented in the right way. And if if the results of that are real penalties for companies that violate those those programs. Well, I, I, we will agree on that point. And I would say there should be real penalties against companies that, that for example, turn off their detection devices. Uh, you started, you started this thing out when, I, when we were tar- talking about third world countries, about you know, street vendors. Street vendors is, an, is a nice uh, straw man. But the reality is that when hundreds of thousands of children in China were sickened and, and, and are probably going to spend the rest of their lives living with a kidney disease that may cause them not to live past the age of 30, possibly millions of children, we don't know for sure, but certainly hundreds of thousands, because of melanin in the, or melamine, rather, in the food supply in China, some of which made it into the United States mostly through animal food, through pet food, 
that that was in food processing plants. That was in big industry in China because China had no regulatory overstructure. They have since spent several billion dollars creating one, but it's nowhere close to being nationwide, which is why the food supply in China is still insecure. And increasingly, we find food coming into the United States from China, like their seafood, that's bacterially contaminated. And we've got, you know, less than 1% of the food coming into this country is being inspected. But, Tom, it's not true that China didn't have a food safety inspection program then. Uh, in fact, the uh, corrupt officials who, who were taking payoffs uh, and letting that kind of uh, uh, contamination go by the board uh, actually have uh, not just been prosecuted in China, but uh, executed. Now, I think execution uh, is, uh, is not the kind of penalties we, we necessarily want to, uh, to use in the United States. I, I, either, for I, either corrupt inspectors or for, for corrupt corporations. Well, I'm not, I'm I, not, I have no problem with the death penalty for corporations. Put them out of business. That's what we used to do in this country. But I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal. One of, one of, one of, one of your peeps. And uh, the, the article is called Food Fumble. China Can't Regulate Away Its Safety Programs. The world has discovered the past two years. Chinese, they talk about the, the uh, Shin Lu Group, which is the company... That, that killed at least six infants, six and sickened at least 300,000 more. It's just the latest example. But they say, but time after time, Be but after all this, Beijing is no closer to a, late, to a lasting solution. Witness the food safety law approved by the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress on Saturday. This was, this was uh, four years ago. I'm s yeah. And uh, I'm sorry, this was in 2009 that they passed a law. They are just in the process this year of actually implementing that law, and it's going to be very spotty. It's a huge country with over a billion people. So the point is that it, 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 big companies in countries that don't have food safety regularly kill people for money. And if it's a cancer, and if it's a what I want you to say, I'm not going to stand here and uh, or sit here and, and defend the Chinese food safety yes. But that's the that's that's what the that's what these Republicans want to take us back to. They want to they want to do away with the FDA. Look, the problem in China is not just corporations; it is the government and, and it's the profit at all motive. Levels. It's if the profit motive corrupting the government. The system in the United States that's a different conversation. Okay, we'll we'll leave it at that. People can check out your writing, Gregory Conco, over at cei.org. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. This morning on Fox & Friends, the co-hosts attacked the Food and Drug Administration for seeking public comment on ways to get Americans to reduce their salt intake. There is an official war on salt, despite recent studies that show that salt really isn't that bad for you. So the FDA has opened up now a formal inquiry into salt reduction. Uh, so what, what is that going to mean? Will we now uh, see that you can't eat salt in your own home, potentially? I mean, uh, you know, they've already done that with smoking, etc. Not really sure. So the thing is, the science is not settled, and yet the government has got to be in their bonnet. They want us to stop eating so much salt and sugar and stuff like that. The food police are rearing their head now that they have uh, called for public comments on how to achieve salt reduction across the country. In 2009, the American Medical Association calculated that 150,000 premature deaths could be prevented each year if Americans cut their salt intake in half.
About a hundred years ago, a novelist named Upton Sinclair went undercover in the meatpacking industry to portray the plight of immigrant America. The resulting book, The Jungle, was so evocative and so disturbing that it changed how the country thought about its food supply and its factory workers. Countless journalists have since employed the same undercover tactic, many of them to expose the hidden corners of our food supply. But two states, Iowa and Minnesota, are now considering legislation that would effectively criminalize such reporting. A third state, Florida, failed to pass its own similar bill earlier this month. Will Potter is the author of Green is the New Red. He says the various bills all have some key provisions in common. They all include very similar provisions, prohibitions against any audio or film recording of what takes place in so-called animal enterprises and agriculture enterprises, including factory farms, animal experimentation facilities, puppy mills, fur farms. So these bills are actually so broad that anyone who not only is involved in the investigation, but merely possesses the video or audio recording could be targeted through them. It would cover not only activists who may be motivated to kind of cook the books in the reporting, but journalists or anyone else for that matter, reporting factually, truthfully, and without any sort of preconceived ideology. And also, even among the people that clearly have politics, who clearly have an interest or they're working for a group like the Humane Society or Mercy for Animals, another animal protection group, they haven't been accused of doing something like cooking the books. I mean, their video documentation has been publicly available, and industry has had a bad public image because of that. But there hasn't been a challenge to the accuracy of what takes place on those tapes. There's an axiom in reporting to find out who benefits. A corollary to that might be who is lobbying on behalf of. Who is lobbying on behalf of legislation that would criminalize undercover reporting? All the usual suspects. For instance, in Iowa, Florida, and Minnesota, some of the politicians who have been the most vocal in support of it have either worked themselves for the pork and agriculture industries, or they're on different boards of directors of organizations, or they've been guest speakers. I mean, they all publicly tout this on their campaign websites, the ties that they have to these industries, because depending on the states they're from, that helps them get elected. Let us agree that if we were confronted with video of an abattoir, we couldn't help but confront the nitty-gritty of how we get our meat. Is it necessarily fair to the producers of meat who maybe are running as ethical an operation as you could possibly imagine to suffer the consequences of the public being just pummeled with shocking images? Well, and one thing the industry has been saying is that these organizations are compiling the worst of the worst. And there's certainly some truth to that, but also these organizations are documenting what's truly standard industry practice. And I think that should be the takeaway of this, is that the standard industry practices, when exposed to the public, are just as egregious and just as offensive. Most people don't understand what a factory farm actually is and how 99% of the industry operates. And I think that's what the real concern is, that if that's exposed, 
we're going to need another series of systemic changes like we saw after the jungle. The proposals here are for special legislation. Are there no remedies under existing law in these three states and the other 47 to deal with fraud, to deal with libel, or you know, any other law that may be broken in the service of collecting this kind of undercover material? If the companies want to allege that they've been defrauded or defamed or maligned through manufactured video, there are all laws on the books to target all of those things. But that's not what this is about. It's not about a lack of tools available to prosecute. It's about the lack of a political will to do so. And I think that's what's the concern to these industries. They have to make sure that these people doing the investigating are the ones who are guilty. They're the ones who are the criminals and not the people actually engaging in these practices. It's taken decades in this country for what used to be considered fairly radical views on civil rights and human rights and the environment to become kind of conventional wisdom. Do you get the sense that we are on the cusp because of the kind of videos that the industry, that the agricultural industry is so afraid of, that the society is on the cusp of utterly rethinking what has till now been the norm? Absolutely. The conclusion that I drew through working on this project for so long is that in a very short amount of time, these social movements have made truly radical advances in how we're thinking about food, transportation, climate change, animal experimentation, logging, all of these issues. If these organizations and activists continue on this path, I mean, they're, they're fundamentally challenging, in my opinion, what it means to be a human being and challenging how we view our interactions with other species and raising very serious ethical, moral, and practical questions about how we should be living our lives. That's a very threatening set of accomplishments. Like humans do Here in the U.S., several environmental and public health groups are suing the Food and Drug Administration in an attempt to force the government to stop farmers from routinely adding antibiotics to livestock feed. The industrial farming technique of giving antibiotics to healthy animals to prevent illness has been implicated in the alarming rise of antibiotic-resistant superbugs, including salmonella and E. coli, the same bacteria in the deadly outbreak in Germany. An estimated 80% of the U.S. antibiotic supply goes to healthy farm animals to keep them from getting sick in crowded factory farm conditions and to help the animals grow faster. Mmm, antibiotics. I 
hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. A lobbyist gets candy on the food pyramid. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. They told him it couldn't be done. But today, Shad Patowski, a lobbyist with the American Association for the Advancement of Confectioners, finally convinced the FDA to add candy to the government's official food pyramid. According to Patowski, he has achieved the food lobbyist's dream of a lifetime. You know, when I see the two to four servings of gummy candy on that pyramid... I just think, wow, I did that. Patowski first gained fame in the industry in 2001 when he successfully worked an earmark for chili cheese fries into the Patriot Act. Doyle Redland for The Onion. This time, I want to look at a new story that could determine whether you live or die. Many of the world's scientists are warning that one of the best weapons we have against sickness is being pretty rapidly rendered useless, just so a few people can get richer for a while. If these people aren't stopped soon, the World Health Organization warns we're facing a, quote, doomsday scenario of a world without antibiotics, end quote. That will mean A world where transplant surgery is impossible. It'll mean a world where a simple appendix operation will be as routinely lethal as it was in 1927 before the discovery of penicillin. It'll be a world where pneumonia and TB and gonorrhea are far harder to deal with and claim a lot more of us. But crucially, it's a world that you and I don't have to see if we act on this warning now. So let me explain. As the scientists I've interviewed uh, explain it, Antibiotics do something really simple. They kill, they slow down, or they stall the growth of bacteria. They were one of the great advances of the 20th century, and they've saved millions of us. There will definitely be people listening to this podcast who are alive as a result of them. But they inherently contain a problem, one that was known about from very early on. They start an arms race. Use an antibiotic against bacteria, and it kills most of it. But it can also prompt the bacteria to evolve a tougher, stronger, meaner strain that can fight back. The bacteria is constantly mutating and dividing. The stronger the antibiotic, the stronger some bacteria will become to survive. Think of it as Darwin dancing at super speed. So, the more we use antibiotics, 
the more we lose them. It's a battle played out on human bodies and in human wounds with sky-high stakes. In many developed countries today, MRSA, or MRSA as it's known in the United States, kills more people than AIDS. The obvious conclusion then is that we should use antibiotics really sparingly and only when they're actually needed to treat the sick. But in one crucial area across the world, we're doing the exact opposite for the sake of a few people's profits. In the United States, Latin America and Asia, animals being farmed for meat and milk are being automatically giving antibiotics in their food all day, irrespective of whether they're healthy or sick. It's like slathering your child's cornflakes with antibiotics all year round on the off chance they get an ear infection. Some 80% of all antibiotics in the United States go straight into farm animals. Now, this speeds up the arms race massively. It's like taking bacteria to the gym and giving them a constant workout and then unleashing them on the rest of us. You can see how this process makes bacteria stronger and tougher and then unleashes them on us in a really startling study by Professor Barry Levy in the New England Journal of Medicine. His team went to a chicken farm where antibiotics hadn't been used before and they started to put the antibiotic tetracycline into their feed. Before the start of the experiment, there were no tetracycline resistant bacteria on the farm. Within two weeks, 90% of the chickens, 90%, were excreting tetracycline resistant organisms. Even more strikingly, half of all the humans living on the farm were by then excreting tetracycline resistant bacteria too. Now this process is happening all over the world and it partially explains the evolution and spread of so many superbugs. Only a fortnight ago, a new strain of MRSA was found in British milk that could be transmitted to human beings. To some degree, this arms race is an inevitable part of nature, but our factory farms are massively artificially accelerating it. They're bringing the day when antibiotics won't work much closer. Now, the obvious question is why? Why would factory farms automatically feed antibiotics to healthy animals, given the obvious risk? Well, if you can cram animals together, give them little room to move and make them grow and produce far beyond the level they would in natural circumstances, they'll routinely get ill. And they do. So it's cheaper for their owners to simply automatically and preemptively drug them all than to try to treat their illnesses individually or to create an environment where sickness is not standard. As the microbiologist Louise Slaughter, who's now in the US House of Representatives, puts it, this is, quote, an industry that is rampantly misusing antibiotics in an attempt to cover up filthy, insanitary conditions among animals, end quote. The animals in these factory farms can then become reservoirs of stronger superbugs. Now, sometimes that spreads out to us through, a com through contamination of raw meat, but much more often it's through workers who have contact with the animals. So, for example, Dutch pig farmers are 760 times more likely to be carrying pig MRSA than the rest of the population. Once you have humans carrying a resistant bacteria, it can spread wider and wider. And it's a story that ends with a world of stronger viruses and no antibiotics to fight them with, and where routine surgical operations become life-threatening once again. We always knew that factory farming was a scar on our conscience, but it turns out it's also an urgent threat to our health. Of course, factory farming isn't the only source of growing antibiotic resistance. Doctors have been overprescribing them, and some patients have too often not been taking their full course, which enables tougher bacteria to survive and thrive. But this is the most egregious cause. 
A few years ago, it looked like the EU had taken the lead by banning the routine use of some types of antibiotics simply to promote the growth of animals. But research published a couple of weeks ago by the Soil Association suggests farmers are sidestepping the real issue. The prescription of modern cephalosporins, the antibiotics which are most widely believed to promote stronger strains of MRSA in animals and in humans, has actually quadrupled in the past decade. Why? Well, they're advertised to farmers who are under greater pressure than ever to get more and more out of their herds because supermarkets have ratcheted up the pressure for quick profit. The decent small farmers who want to resist these trends soon find themselves out of business. The former chief medical officer in Britain, Liam Donaldson, says this overprescription is so dangerous to us that it should be immediately banned. Yet David Cameron's government ignored the official recommendation from its own veterinary advisers to take even the much milder step of banning the advertising and promotion of antibiotics to farmers. It might seem strange that governments all over the world are taking such a gamble with public health in the face of the best scientific advice. But big agriculture has armies of lobbyists and open checkbooks, while the people trying to protect the public have only the facts and reason and truth on their side. The squandering of life-saving antibiotics is just one example of a much bigger trend that's hijacking global politics, one that I talk about so much. Small groups of rich people determined to maximise their profits are buying or bamboozling politicians into serving their interests and into ignoring the interests of you, me and the vast majority of the population. This is the trend that's making it so hard to, for example, re-regulate the banks to prevent another global crash or to prevent the unravelling of the climate. It doesn't have to be this way. The majority of the population can organise and stand together in their own self-interest and shout louder than these small self-interested hunters of profit. There are inspiring examples of this happening all around you. In Lincolnshire, for example, there were plans to import the first US-style mega farm into this country by a group of tycoons who claimed, these quotes are real, <laughs> that their cows, quote, do not belong in fields and won't want to go out, end quote. But huge public pressure forced the Environment Agency to investigate and the plans to be abandoned. Fighting back on issues like this works, and so we need to step it up. Otherwise, the history books, written by people more vulnerable to bacteria than you or I have ever been, will record something startling. Our demand for cheap meat will have turned us, in turn, into cheap meat. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. We will continue normal voicemails in future episodes. Today I have a a weird voicemail that is – well, it's a cross between a voicemail and almost like a bonus segment of the show. It's uh, exceptionally long, like a normal segment of the show would be, and but it's a voicemail. I just thought that it was so good that I considered putting it in the regular part of the show. And then when it came time to make this episode on food, it turned out I had enough clips to fill the regular show. And so this is just kind of in this no man's land between a voicemail and a bonus clip. So I'm just going to play it and uh, we can all enjoy it regardless of what you call it. Hi, Jay. This is Mara from Pittsburgh. And I wanted to call in uh, a response 
to the different calls about veganism, vegetarianism, and meat eating. Look, as you rightly point out, Jay, much of the problem in this debate is that each side acts very arrogantly when they say that the other side is ignoring some fact that is obviously true. For example, the person who said he didn't like Citizen Radio because the host refused to admit the obvious fact that there's an ethical way to eat meat. And then the person on a recent podcast who said it was obviously true that killing a sentient being is wrong. The reason that there's a debate here at all is that none of these things are, in fact, obviously true. So first, I want to say that I strongly agree, disagree, sorry, with moral relativism, um, which is expressed by some of your callers. Uh, I don't think that what is right or wrong morally depends on what society does or does not condone. There are, of course, different societal conventions across the world for lots of things, but this doesn't mean that actual morality is subject to individual tastes or the tastes of their communities. So I want to start with the argument for vegetarianism. The core of this argument is usually that it is wrong to kill a sentient being, period, full stop. Then the arguer points out that many animals that we eat are sentient, like cows and pigs. Generally, the definition of a sentient being is not well articulated, but it mostly seems that a sentient being has some intelligence, has the ability to feel pain, has self-awareness, and or is other regarding. This is also the reason why many, many vegetarians think it's okay to eat fish and seafood because they don't seem to be sentient. So far, so good. But opponents are often, albeit inarticulately, questioning the core of the argument. Why is it wrong to kill a sentient being? Why is it wrong to kill a be being with feelings? Some vegetarians just say that it's a basic fact that is obvious, but it's that response that causes the impasse. There may be answers to this question, though, as one caller alluded to. We don't kill babies or the handicapped or the elderly for sport or food, and I take it that the implicit assumption made by the caller is that we don't do things because babies, the handicapped, and elderly are sentient beings, but that may not be true. Many people would say that we don't kill these beings because they are human, and we share a special bond with them because of that fact. So while sentience may be integral to humanness, it is not the sole reason humans are special. Another response to saying it's wrong to kill a sentient being um, is that sentience doesn't have anything to do with it in another way. Morality is a human invention. It is humans that have moral rights and moral obligations and humans alone that can make moral judgments. For example, we do not think it is wrong for a cheetah to kill a gazelle for food. We do not think the gazelle is morally superior to the cheetah because it eats plants and the cheetah eats meat. We think that it is wrong for a person to kill another person, but we don't think it's morally wrong if a bear kills a person. It may be an awful tragedy, but the bear did not do anything ethically wrong. Thus, the argument goes, morality is for people. We may think that the fact that we have morality means we have at least some obligations to non-human animals. So, for example, we may have the obligation not to be cruel to animals that can feel pain, but this may not be because they are sentient. Some argue that we ought not be cruel to animals because it will have the effect of making us cruel to each other. So our obligation towards animals is just piggybacks on our obligations towards other people. But some people have argued that privileging humans above others just because they are human is a kind of speciesism. We have discovered over the last few centuries that it is wrong to privilege white people over black people simply because they are white. This is racism. And it's wrong to privilege men over women 
just because they are men. This is sexism. Race and sex, while they make all kinds of practical difference, differences in specific cases, do not make any moral difference in deciding who gets equal consideration. Similarly, some extend the analogy to say that while the difference between human and non-human may make significant differences in all kinds of situations, it does not make any moral difference in deciding, deciding who gets equal consideration. That is, if babies get moral consideration that exempts them from being killed for food or sport, then animals should get this exemption too. Anything else is just saying that might makes right and that we are morally allowed to kill animals for food and sport just because we can. What does make the moral difference then between what we can kill and what we can't? Some say that there is no dividing line that depends on particular attributes that a being has, and so sentience would not be the answer. You could, after all, be a utilitarian about it and say that in each case it depends on the calculation of minimizing pain and maximizing pleasure. So, for example, the vegetarian, vegetarians may not think it was wrong for our ancestors to eat meat because their only other option was starvation. One animal may be able to feed many people, so the overall calculation comes out positive. Vegetarians may think that it is wrong to eat veal because the pain and suffering inflicted on a veal calf while it's being raised outweighs the pleasure that people get from eating tender pink meat. Thus, eating veal is wrong, but not directly because a veal calf is a sentient animal, but because a veal calf can experience pain and suffering, and we have an obligation to minimize that wherever possible. And many vegetarians do have a kind of propensity to be utilitarians about the situation, even though utilitarianism would condone meat-eating under certain circumstances. This is borne out when vegetarians make arguments about animal cruelty on factory farms, hunting for sport or animal, testing of beauty products. It is also borne out in the argument that we could feed many more people on the planet if we did not waste so much food raising cows and pigs for their meat. For example, the same amount of grain can produce a pound of meat or 10 pounds of grain-based food. So it is wrong to use that grain to produce meat because it would produce so much more food. This is basically a utilitarian argument that the amount of pleasure that some number of people get from eating meat is outweighed by the amount of pain and suffering experienced by starving people around the world. But of course, the question that needs to be asked is, why should I be a utilitarian about meat eating? After all, strict utilitarianism can lead to a tyranny of the majority. Thus, in our own political system, while we operate like utilitarians about many things, majority vote wins, for example, we all have rights that cannot be violated, even if the violation would lead to the greatest good for the greatest number. So let's take, take stock. All right, we have basically two reasons for not eating meat. It is wrong to kill sentient beings for food or sport, and it is wrong to eat animals if the pain and suffering, either of the animals or other people, outweighs the pleasure of meat eating. Either of these reasons would need further justification. But yet there's another argument put forth mainly by vegans that it is wrong to make any, any other being a slave. The argument generally goes like this. Animals have certain interests, and these interests include staying alive, reproducing, and avoiding suffering. And you make another being your slave if you subvert any of these interests without permission. Thus, vegans generally believe that it, not only is it wrong to kill animals for food or sport, it is also wrong to make animals produce food for us, even if they are not dying. For example, we make cows our slaves by forcing them to provide milk. We make bees our slaves by forcing them to provide honey, etc. But of course, like any argument, we can question the unstated assumptions. Why is it wrong to subvert the interests of other beings? Is it because the other beings are sentient? What is it that is intrinsically valuable about interests? After all, as humans, we subvert each other's interests all the time. 
This is usually what contract negotiations are all about. What of each of our interests we are allowing to go unfulfilled in order that we may fulfill others? But, says the vegan, that subversion is with consent. We do not get the consent of animals, and that's what makes it wrong. The difference here, though, is not that animals don't consent. It is that they can't consent, or at least we can't know if they consent. Furthermore, it's not clear what it would even mean in certain circumstances. Take honey, for example. Bees are born genetically programmed to do a particular job within a hive, and they have ways of communicating with each other in order to do these jobs. Given that whatever nervous system bees do have is concerned primarily with threat detection, I doubt whether bees care whether people take their honey, as beekeepers are generally able to do their jobs without posing a threat to the hive and generally ensure that the hive thrives. So I'm not really sure what it would mean for bees to get consent. But maybe the question about which animals have interests we have to respect also comes down to a question of which animals are sentient. It may be okay to eat honey but not milk because bees are not sentient but cows are. But then the question goes back to one previously addressed. What's so special about being sentient? So what does all this amount to? I know this has been very long, and I don't know what the right answer is, or even if there is a right answer. What I really want is civil discourse, as you said in the recent podcast, and for people to recognize that the things that they believe are obviously true may not be obvious to others at best and may be considered false by others at worst. As such, people need to critically examine their own positions and ideas, We are generally pretty good at criticizing other people, but not so good at inward reflection. You should constantly be asking yourself what assumptions you're making, what kind of logic are you using, whether you're being fair and charitable to others, whether you are getting your facts from reliable sources, where you get your beliefs from, and whether you may be biased in some way that you aren't realizing. If more people did this on a regular basis, maybe we could talk civilly about veganism and vegetarianism. And maybe our government wouldn't be so screwed up. Anyway, that's just my two cents and probably more like five since it was so long. Thanks, Jay, and keep up the good work. So that's going to be it for today. I want to thank Mara from Pittsburgh for that call and a couple of members before I go. Susan E. signed up for a leftist membership, paid for a full year in advance back on September 28th of last year. And uh, Robert A. signed up for a leftist monthly membership uh, back on September 20th of last year and has stuck with the show since then. So huge thanks to Robert and Susan and all the members and donors who make the show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word about uh, individual clips that you find. I've, all those po- are posted on the website to, to share, of course. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and donate your accounts to us as well while you're at it. Information on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode are always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white. Up on a picture that wasn't right 